0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Country Roads, was recorded at the 2019 Festival. Rosalie Ham, Holly Throsby and Christian White discuss the big drama of small towns.
1: Your host is Meredith Jaffe.
2: So I'll start with the introductions, I'll start with Rosalie at the end here, she's the author of four novels including the international bestseller The Dressmaker which went on to become an award winning film, her other novels include Summer at Mount Hope and There Should Be More Dancing and her latest novel is The Year of the Farmer which Rosalie describes as being about survival, love and justice in a small rural community. Christian. He gets to be the rose between two thorns because he's (laughs) the boy today. (laughs) Christian is a screenwriter and novelist whose early draft of The Nowhere Child won him the 2017 Victoria Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript. From there, the novel was snapped up by a publisher and went on to become one of Australia's best-selling debut novels. It sold into 16 countries and was shortlisted for the 2019 Indie Book Awards. Holly Throsby is known to us in many guises, singer, songwriter, musician and novelist. Her debut novel Goodwood was published in 2016 to critical acclaim and was shortlisted for multiple awards. And published in 2018 was her second novel Cedar Valley which met with rave reviews proving that Holly is on track to become as much loved as a novelist as she is as a performer. Can you please join me in welcoming Rosalie, Christian and Holly. To get us started, I'm going to ask each of you to go through and just give us. I know writers hate this, so sorry. I'm going to give you the hard question first a little overview of what your novel is about. So we'll start with you, Rosalie.
1: Mine's about irrigation water, but to make that palatable, (laughs) there is love and hate and betrayal and all the other things that um, are kind of present in any small community anywhere Uh, and it's about one man and his journey against the water authority and lots of people told me before I wrote it that it wasn't going to be very interesting and no one would be interested and I'm happy to say that that's not the case.
3: (laughs) Christian. Uh, so my book is about, that was so much more concise than I can do it. But, um, my book is about uh, this uh, woman living in Melbourne, a teacher, and she's approached by this sort of um, mysterious American accountant who has been investigating a kidnapping, a, a little girl who was kidnapped back in the 90s from a small town in Kentucky where they uh, they practice Pentecostal snake handling. They worship God by handling snakes and all this kind of crazy stuff. And she thinks... Uh, and this guy says, I think you are the little girl who went missing. And, of course, she thinks um, that's ridiculous, but she kind of digs a little bit into her family history and feels... It's, it's tricky to talk about without spoilers, but she, she finds enough to sort of compel her to, to go to this small town in Kentucky and uh, in, investigate.
2: That's not bad. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah, thanks.
3: I wasn't fishing, but I'm glad you... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, my book, Cedar Valley, is... um, It's the story of a girl called Benny Miller, who comes from Sydney to the small town of Cedar Valley in the early 90s in order to find out information about her mother, who has recently died. Um, Her mother's oldest friend lives in the town and has offered her a place to stay. Um, On the same day that Benny arrives in Cedar Valley, um, a man in a kind of vintage suit also arrives and sits down on the pavement in front of the antique store. Um, and due to some unexpected events, he becomes the subject of great fascination for the town folk. Uh, So it's kind of... um, I see it as kind of a dual uh, mystery story. Um, One is a kind of crimey one, and the other is more a sort of family, uh, domestic kind of uh, mystery, I guess a story of sort of self-realisation. And I also view it as a kind of low-key Australian comedy in some senses. Hmm.
2: Well Dumb. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And then really I'm always interested as a writer myself, but I know as and also as a reader how one goes about writing that particular novel, because it's not always the same process for every single novel. So I'm going to go reverse order this time. But I'm just curious, like what what came first for you with Cedar Valley? Was it the characters, the plot, uh, the setting? What what? How did that story unfold for you? Uh,
0: I think it was uh, two things at the same time. The setting, because I had written... My first novel uh, that you mentioned, Goodwood, is set in a town of that name, a fictional town in New South Wales. Um, And when I was writing Goodwood, I was sort of trying to give it uh, a geographical context and I had situated it among other towns, one being Cedar Valley. So um, when I was, uh, you know, arriving at the end of, uh, of Goodwood, the writing process, I was still sort of so in love with this universe um, that I wanted to continue on in a nearby town. So while they're both standalone books, there are some threads that connect the two. Um, so I had the sort of setting already there in my mind and while writing Goodwood, Cedar Valley, it had already kind of come into my imagination as a place. Um, but I also had Benny, the lead character, and I had her kind of story and a sense of her. So I kind of begun with, with both of those and, and went from there. Mm.
2: Mm.
3: What about you, Christian? Uh, for, for me, it was the uh, the sort of the, the, the hook, I guess, the sort of the one-liner what if you were you know, what if you discovered your parents might be your kidnappers, uh, which came from kind of a, I apologize, I I told this yesterday if anyone was in that panel as well, but it came from this sort of weird place, uh, this sort of very uh, heartbreaking conversation I was having with my Nan who is in her late 90s and has dementia. And I was, you know, telling these awful conversations you have where you explain who you are, I'm, I'm you know, I'm your grandson and, and that's that's your daughter and all this sort of stuff. And I began, um, I, I kind of just got obsessed with how memory works. You know, she would have these lucid moments, but also uh, then just get lost. And I started to, uh, you know, I, I get these obsessions. And now that I'm officially a writer, I can re- call it research, but at the time I would just procrastinate with these uh, obsessions. So I, I just delve into memory for some reason uh, and I discovered uh, this thing called Decay Theory, uh, which is the original title of the manuscript uh, that got changed because nobody in the world except for me <laughs> liked it. Uh, uh, but, yeah, and, and this, uh, Decay Theory suggests that um, uh, w- when we create a memory, we create this thing called neurochemical trace, which is sort of this thread, I described it in the book as a, a sort of a thread you tug on to access that memory, uh, and this theory suggests that the... Over time, that that thread, that trace, can fray and eventually break, but the memory remains whole and in your head. So, it, it so the, the whole book for me, it sort of started there with this with this sort of uh, it, weird abstract kind of thing that I didn't know what form it would take, uh, and, and I just started thinking about that and thinking about it over and over, and, and I thought, oh, what if what if I have a memory that I just can't access, it will change who I am. And then very quickly I thought, uh, weirdly, uh, what, if, oh, what if my parents kidnapped me? What if, what if they've been lying to me, you know? Uh, and I don't know why, they're wonderful people. But um, <laughs> I think because between the ages two and four, they kept me in a basement and uh, yeah, locked me in chains. But yeah, that's where it kind of came from, this weird, um, this memory obsession that ended up forming into uh, what it is. God knows if I answered the question, I'd do that. But yeah, you go, let's pass it along.
1: Oh, mine started in childhood, um, and it came from many, many years spent driving around the family farm with my dad uh, and stopping in the middle of nowhere and looking off into the distance and just waiting for him to see and hear what was going on. Um, And then eventually, as we all knew, you would get the talk And the talk was the plight of farming and farmers being the primary producers who are always asked to do more for less, to maintain the industry and the universe that they support. And so for for listening to that for many, many years and then then that that talk got passed down to my brothers. it just like seemed like something i had to do and because i understood it and i understood about irrigation and i knew that not many other people did so i thought that i would write a novel and change the world <laughs> educate all of you about irrigation so that's where mine came from and i'm really pleased i've got it off my chest so it's all in there <laughs>
2: Setting is very important to all of your stories, Rosalie, um, and they're almost invariably, except for one, set in a small country town, mm. although even the one that isn't set in a small country town is set in a very small and contained environment. Is it a case of writing what you know, or is it, what are the factors that draw you to setting these in these familiar little communities? I don't know.
1: I think it's just the way um, I was formed. That is, when I was a kid, my land... My... Um, imagination was kind of furnished in a small community. And they are perfect. As we all know, any small community, staff rooms, sporting clubs, urban street, whatever, you know the people and you know the way they function and you can see the subtext and you can see the lies and the dualities and the double standards and you know the secrets. <laughs> and for me, that just makes an absolutely fascinating uh, palette. And it's for me, it's a small canvas upon which you can speak in very general terms Um, and so that's just my technique and that's the way it is and even when I do as you say move to the city, I move to an urban street, I still found that it still, as we all as writers know, all of us that it has to do with your character's representing certain things and carrying themes and, and it's easy to get them in and out of a house and across the street and mm. it's easy to do all those sorts of things when you've got a small contained um, community and also the landscape will inform that. Uh, in, the, in the year of the farmer, obviously, it's got to do with irrigation so it had to be a small country town. Um, but they just... Uh, for, to me, they lend themselves to all of the themes on the planet Mm.
2: Sure. Mm. I'm really hoping you don't come from a place like Manson, Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> no,
3: no, but, no definitely not. But what not. was
2: it about you wanting to create that small community? That and it's incredibly claustrophobic mm. community in the novel, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what What was important to you about that setting?
3: It, it, so there's a couple of things. It's, it's exactly like you said. This you sort of this little microcosm, mm. uh, and I think small towns in general. Um, I, I didn't grow up grow up in a small town, so to me, they've always been. Uh, the idea of this really tiny, tightly knit community is uh, really appealing, but also kind of creepy to me. You know, I've just moved to a small town. For the first time in my life, I've moved to this little um, seaside town uh, down near Melbourne. And I I love it, but you start to know everyone, and and you do start to sort of know everyone's secrets. And I think that if something terrible happens, like a little girl goes missing... I think it's terrible anywhere but when it happens in a city you can sort of disconnect a bit more from it mm-hmm. but if, you, if it happens in this little town everyone the chances are you know the person who has either gone missing or someone affected by it so I, uh, that was really important and also I, I i've spent a lot of time in kentucky and in the states and I, I i love it there but it's this it's this beautiful um really interesting place because you go to these little small towns and they're there's these super friendly colourful people and and it's wild and gorgeous and you say, oh, I love this town oh, but we should probably go you know, there's this weird kind of (laughs) undercurrent especially now there's this sort of weird sort of of unsettling and um, uh, and I knew that one of my other weird uh, things that I researched was Pentecostal snake handling. As I mentioned, you know, these people who—it um, seems—it will go back to the point. Uh, it, 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 for anyone who doesn't know, they worship God yeah, by handling venomous snakes and scorpions, and they they base their beliefs on um, a couple of passages from the Bible that they take literally. Uh, but it, it's it's kind of uh, you know. It, God is the winner in it because they believe God. They believe God will protect them from being bitten, but maybe they'll get bitten. But then God will protect them from dying. But maybe they'll die. But that's kind of God's thing as well. So uh, and <laughs> so it's really fascinating, uh, fringe religion, but it only uh, is still practiced in a couple of American, uh, Southern American places. And because I had this connection to Kentucky uh, anyway, it was sort of seemed like a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: You obviously love small towns. <laughs> Two novels so far, in very small communities. Yeah. What what draws you to to do to that kind of setting for your novels? Um, I felt
0: I think Rosalie really summed that up in a way that I would just agree with everything you said there. Um, I think in terms of having you know being able to explore the kind of the way that humans inter relate to each other in this kind of microcosm is just broadly so representative of of human interaction in general. Um, For me, I I think imaginatively, even though I have lived in the city my whole life, um, I was locating some kind of creative energy in this region of the south... inland of the south coast of New South Wales because I've recorded all but one of my albums in home studios in... um, uh, the Kangaroo Valley, and Wilds Meadow, which is in the Southern Highlands. So spending so much sort of creative energy because those recording processes took a very long time and mostly were, you know, a few hours of recording and the rest of the time traipsing around going to small towns and enjoying them, I really fell in love with that region. So, excuse me, when I I sat down and thought about writing fiction, I was sort of already there in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, But also for me, I really wanted to work within the crime and mystery sort of setup although I would describe both of my books as kind of anti-crime books um, but I kind of I really enjoyed using the kind of functions of that genre to create something that would hopefully kind of turn it on its head a little um, in cedar Valley there is, a sort of police procedural element which i had a lot of fun writing it's it's done in a way that is hopefully quite funny but what i enjoyed about doing a small town setting for crime is that it is quite different as you were saying from big cities it's sort of the anonymity that you get in in big city also feeds into the type of crimes that are committed there the type of crimes that um, are committed in small towns because i also did research which i found very enjoyable um <clears throat> was that, you know, the type of crime that that can happen in smaller towns is often uh, not reported as much because people usually do know the perpetrator, whether they're in the family or whether they're part of the community. A lot of the stuff tends to be dealt with a little separate from sort of traditional police procedural elements. So in both the books the communities themselves are kind of the ways in which the mystery or crime, in inverted commas, um, unfolds. And in terms of memory, I was very interested in that in people that live in these communities and their kind of living memory is actually holds a lot of the answers, even though they might not know that they have them. Um, And so I really enjoyed letting the townspeople be very active in the kind of pace of the revelation um, through face-to-face conversation, which is something I loved about setting it in the 90s. Nobody texts. Um, And I really loved sort of getting a lot of that kind of real... The whole of Cedar Valley is really propelled by these sort of interactions, face-to-face interaction between um, people in the town. Um, And the police, in a way, are almost trying to catch up. (laughs)
2: One of the things that struck me too when I was sort of preparing this session is that for a long time, when I used to be a book critic, it was still a really big issue about um, domestic drama, suburban Mm. settings, you know, that these small communities were somehow... Novels set like this were somehow lesser in a literary sense than, uh, you know, big global themed novels. And and yet, you know, obviously all of you don't agree with that because you wouldn't (laughs) have have written what you've written. But what, what do you think... What, how do you think writing those very contained environments, the very small settings, um, how do they help you inform on those global themes? Do you do you think it actually makes it easier to talk uh, to extrapolate from a small setting than it would be to try and write write a broad landscape type novel?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do. No, I do. I think that if you can relate um, deception dishonesty, injustice, violence, what is fair, what is not fair, if you can relate that to a domestic scene and then think of a politician or draw some kind of sort of subtle mm. um, correlation between those two things in the text, I think that's a really effective way to, you know, put things across. Mm. Uh, mm. Because depending on the kind of writer you are, the kind of books that I write, I try to do that because I'm a little bit conscious of my... Audience, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm not sure the other two writers might have a different idea, but I I think that's a really good device.
2: Because I found that. when I read The Nowhere Child, for instance, I felt that it spoke a lot to the current state of American politics mm-hmm. and the current um, social climate in the states. Was that was that something that you intentionally wanted to put on the page, not not as a blunt instrument, I might add. Just it yeah. just felt like that when I, I read the book.
3: I, no, and we'd. Uh, that didn't occur to me till right now that you said that. That didn't oh, occur really? to me. No. Uh, but you're right, it does. But I, I think that um, so much... You know, when you talk about things like themes and messages and all that sort of stuff, for me, uh, it's... It, I tr- sort of try to intuit most of it. You know, I, re- I really focus on plot and character and all that sort of stuff. But all I find that these themes just work their way in naturally. Mm. I mean, I did think about... Um, I, you know, because it deals with... Uh, the, the Kentucky chapters are set in the 90s as well this is this mm-hmm. great device because it's, it's brilliant uh, but so and i, and I know that I, I wanted to look at what it would be like to be in a small community but also uh you know be gay and be have a family and all this sort of stuff so i think that that was all really conscious uh, and i really mm-hmm. thought um and kentucky's is the perfect you know it's, it's everything's a bit heightened uh but no the rest i sort of um intuited but i think you can i think that you personally anyway i do it uh, instinctively if, it, when i sit down and, and come up with a story it's about taking the characters from one place to another mm. and everything else just sort of happens uh, by accident really mm. yeah mm. yeah if i'm being honest i wish i had a better i wish i said yes it was all intentional and uh you know yeah, that's I, right. I weaved my message into yes. the fabric of the page Where and, is that pipe? yeah, that you can sit there <laughs> yeah and exactly but yeah no no i was just <laughs> wrote a kidnapping story and that all uh, the rest <laughs> happened yeah <laughs>
2: And then I know you deliberately set your novel, Cedar Valley, in the 90s. Mm. Um, So I guess in a way you're going backwards rather than looking forwards, if that makes sense. But it was this sort of... I mean, tell us why you said it in the 90s. And and is there a sense when you're writing or even when you're at the polishing phase that you're trying to think about bigger themes? Or are you like Christian where it's Uh, like, oops, I just did that? I
0: I do... I certainly wouldn't be trying to impose any kind of sort of didactic message into fiction. I mean, I think that there is room for that. Obviously, you know, Animal Farm's a great book, but for me there is a certain room for something like that that can... Um, And I I actually think, in a way, fantasy um, or sort of an anti-utopian genre, those kind of genres, like The Handmaid's Tale, they Mm. they actually kind of do that in a way better than, I think, um, this kind of fiction, which essentially is we're all writing kind of realism. Mm. Um, In a way, I feel like it kind of comes across better in that sense. Otherwise, I feel like it might end up sounding a little programmatic Mm. or a a little like the author had a little too much to say. I mean, I feel like the author's worldview. Um, in some senses, of course, comes across. um, And in whatever environment you're writing in at the time and whatever whatever environment you're invoking, there's a certain type of worldview, an authorial view, that that might come across. But for me, I hope that is incredibly subtle. Mm -hmm. Um, I think potentially the thing that would come out of both of these books is potentially an optimism around human nature, a certainly... ..a certainly an attempt to, to understand why people behave in a certain way, um, even if those ways might be kind of excruciatingly awful. Um, I, I hope that there is a certain kindness um, that is offered to the characters in the books that I write because I, I do feel that way. Um, but I guess in Goodwood, maybe the first book I wrote, uh, there is a queer theme in that book um, which... Which in, in some ways um, was quite personal for me, but it's not something I sort of thought oh, I'm going to write a book that does this with a queer theme. It's something that kind of did organically come from the text midway through I was writing it and I feel like that that is apparent, that, that sort of revelation of that is apparent um, in the reading hopefully. But. Um, I'm glad that it sits where it sits because I wouldn't have written, wanted to write that book that says mm. it should be this way. It's more like it is this way. How does everybody feel about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, I, I think, is what good fiction should
2: try and do. Mm. But one of the things I think is interesting too is, like... And I always wonder, like, you've, you've created this very contained environment where all these things are happening... Do you sometimes find that a constraint, that, that it can be difficult to just have it in this one little town or this one little microcosm of the universe?
1: Me, no, not no? at all. No, it's 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 never been a problem. The thing about small communities is that people come and go mm. from them so they can bring things and um, take things a, away with them. So, for me, it's not a problem. It's, it's actually better because you can focus on... Um, that one person and that one character and that one thing that they're trying to say um, and you can make that more clear like more intense so that you can hold it up as Holly Mm. suggests for the reader to look at it and say how do you feel about that? Mm. Um, You can manipulate things and work things so that you don't have to be conscious of the fact that it's just in that one particular place. You can make it universal and more so in a small area, I think. I mm. don't know if that made sense. <laughs> yeah. <trying to laughs> no, is, think, yeah. I
0: think Carl Rogers said that, um, that that which is most personal is most universal. And I do think mm. that, that, always, that sort of really struck me as a songwriter, that the more personally you go, the more generally kind of universal yes. those themes end up, which I, it's always w- weirdly paradoxical, but it mm. seems quite true.
3: Yeah. Mm. Mm. You just have to t- just take a chance that you're not the only one who feels like that, you know, which you usually are. You definitely not. Yeah, yeah, it's
2: good. (laughs) And the other thing that struck me too about the, the similarities with these three books was that it's the classic thing about... You know, they say that the truism of storytelling is either the stranger comes to town and disrupts the universe mm. or someone leaves town and and goes and explores a, a broader universe. And I thought it was quite amusing that in your case, Rosalie, that both happen in <laughs> your book. The, the stranger comes to town and people leave town and these yeah. these are catalysts for stories. In, is, is it just because... Are they truisms or clichés because it actually really does work so well as a storytelling device that...
1: Both. It's a, a, a truism, and a, or all of them, and a cliché, and it really does work. Mm. But for me, growing up in a small town of um, Gerildry, there was a, a Greyhound bus that came through once a week and it dropped someone off. And in the dust, as the bus receded, there was a person standing there with a suitcase, and that person had a story attached mm. to them. And it was Yeah, and it was the duty of everyone in that town to find out what the story <laughs> was, um, just as it was to take an interest in what everybody else was doing and form an opinion about it. And so that's just the way my mind works. But there are some people that got off that bus that were on the next bus out... Because we found out what the story, and there are some people that have just came for respu- refuge and respite, mm. Um, mm. and there are some people that came and settled it and never said a word, and we still don't know. But someone <laughs> will find out one day. You know. <laughs>
2: yeah. What about you, Christian? Do you, uh, did, were what, you conscious of that? Were you conscious of this idea that the stranger comes to town and brings trouble, or that you leave town and find a bigger universe? Yeah,
3: because it. it Mine, in a way, has a bit of both as well, because there's this little girl who leaves, and then years later, she's a stranger coming back. But um, yeah, I get. I guess. I mean, I guess it is. A, it is a cliche, but it is. Um, yeah, it does. It just it works. works, and that's how. Yeah. That's how it would happen. Yeah, but I think because um, I'm a screenwriter as well, I'm always thinking about uh, you know um, just how to how to most efficiently and, and quickly tell the tell story in a certain way and that just felt sort of, it just feels natural I think because it mm. happens, yeah, mm. and sometimes you do have to uh, lean into the cliches uh, mm. because I mean it's not really, cl- it is, it's kind of a cliche I but think yeah,
0: it's a trope and maybe yeah. the trope has become a cliche but I mean we've all seen you know, like it's, I think it started with like westerns you know like, yeah, that's
3: <laughs> right. yeah.
2: Um, yeah, yeah yeah and it is also that idea, that that very common story about when truth and story come to town mm. and story's wearing the, you know, brightly coloured cloak mm. and everyone gathers to story to hear what story has to say and truth is really pissed off, basically, because <laughs> no one wants to hear what truth has to say. And it is that sense as well, isn't it, that mm. that through story we can reach greater truths than than, than if we just you know, laid down, as you said earlier, if I just said, this is my worldview, take it or leave it. <laughs>
3: yeah. And yeah, it does, and... and... When someone leaves or comes, it, it, as you were saying, it does sort of um, have a ripple effect. It, it, it touches everyone in a certain way, in a minor way or a major way. Maybe they're just gossiping, or maybe they're, they're touched by it. And, and that's really interesting to me about small towns too: is that uh, everyone has a perspective, and, it's, and everyone's perspective is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yes. it's just rich and mm, yeah, yeah, fun to fun to sort of and roll cre- around.
1: Holly it. made the point about the, um, the town having its own truth and its own justice, mm. own story. So that upsets that. Because everybody in a small community knows the backstory. Mm. And they may not um, render the story just by um, legal means, but in some way it is always made just, isn't it? And Mm. retribution is served out and revenge or whatever it is. And that all is taken care of by the subtext, by the the existing Mm. story. So when someone comes into that or leaves that... Um, it just adds one more layer to something that is already dynamic. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: it's also a, in a, a practical thing sometimes because if you uh, if you're going into a world where they all, especially a small town. Where they all know and exist, and they all know each other's everything, and you kind the of truth. sometimes you need to be guided, and, and just having someone go into a place, you're with them, you're in their head, so mm. they act as a sort of a, a guide. To okay, I don't know what that statue is, I don't know why I, well, I'm using a statue as an example, but <laughs> if that character doesn't, the reader doesn't either. So they we learn it with them, and so mm. it, it's sort of a, a practical thing as well, I think.
2: And in in your case though, you I mean in a way, Ben comes to town, and she is a stranger, but equally you've got this wonderful cast of characters who know more about her than she does, in a way, don't they? Uh,
0: In a way, they (laughs) do. Um, Yeah, I think... For me, I mean, I loved the trope so much and was was aware of it. I mean, I've I've certainly watched a lot of films as well because I used to work in a video store and it's a wonderful film trope as well. Um, <laughs> You're the next Quentin Tarantino. I, I, liked it, I liked it so much that I had two strangers arrive on the same day. Yes. like, let's really exploit this and see how far we can take it. Um, in Goodwood, it was different because it was told a first-person narration from a girl who's 17 and lives in the town and is very much in that town and that, that was sort of a different thing. But... Um, there is one character that does arrive and disrupts her personally in a, in a way. But that's sort of sort of separate to the main story. In Cedar Valley, yes, two people do arrive. But in both the books, I really felt that the, the towns have a great deal of character in themselves. You know, like as, as, an, as a character, um, Goodwood and Cedar Valley kind of work in this certain way um, and slightly different from each other. Um, I was sort of in love with both of the towns, and so I enjoyed the way that Cedar Valley, as a sort of as a whole community, sort of deals with Benny and then deals with this man who arrives. Um, but yeah, I, I was sort of quite conscious of that, and I, in my mind, I think I was quite—I've definitely in, inspired by the television show Northern Exposure for both of these oh books. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just felt as a, when I was in a teenager, I couldn't have been more obsessed with that show. Oh. I used to. Um, yeah, I had them all on VHS, and I, it sort of it did create a certain worldview in my brain. But so did the film Baghdad Cafe, which um, oh, which is also in, in terms of a stranger comes to a town. It's not even a town; it's like a no. service station yes. with a couple of motel rooms. But there's something about the tone of both of those um, works that I'd watched so many times that by the time I got to writing these books, they informed me just as much as other novels, I think. Mm. Um, just in terms of what I was trying to achieve in terms of humour and um, a, a certain weirdness. But mm-hmm. I think, a, a, you know, you certainly went for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think there is something um, about smaller communities that fosters a sort of wonderful idiosyncrasy as well as a kind of terrifying <laughs> yeah. type of yeah.
2: Fargo yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
3: Yes. I mean, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I always thought Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks were in a way, such similar shows, but they just went in different yeah, directions, Yeah, well, Twin Peaks used to scare me as a kid, it, yeah. but
0: I, I was so drawn to it, but from afar, as only as an adult as adult I was able to enjoy it, because I was a little young at the time. But yeah, they kind of go, that goes very much on the kind yeah. of weirdness, but it also, it's something so magnetic about that.
2: Yeah. Um...
0: Which yeah, I always found very interesting.
2: And the other thing that's really interesting too is that you all um, have a lot of fun with your writing and in, in the backstory. You've all touched on this, the backstory of the of the town. Mm. And and I'm just wondering, does the, it, is it is it just about character, or do you find it really useful as a way of servicing the plot to have these people who know more about each other or the back, the whole history than the lead character does, or characters do themselves? Is that is that the fun of it, is to go, and I know more about you than you do? Kind yeah, of.
1: we have to keep ourselves entertained. Um, and so I, I find it very entertaining to have those characters. I do think that they are integral to the plot. They all... You don't... You've got to... If you don't, your editor will edit out a character that doesn't do anything or doesn't mm. contribute or doesn't progress the narrative in some sort of way. Um... And I, for me, because I grew up in a small community, and I'm sure for, the, for you as well, you, we see that stuff. You pick up that stuff. Mm. You know all that stuff. When you sit in a cafe and look at the people and the interactions, um, we all attribute stories to those people and we make them mm. up. I'm sure everybody does. And I just do that in a, in a big way to keep, keep myself entertained and to progress the Plot.
2: Although mm. I have to say, living in a small town is that we have a saying, I don't know if it's universal, but it's just like Switzerland. Like, you just don't get involved in other people's crap. <laughs> and, no. But you can't do that in a novel, can you? Because it would be really boring if everyone went, <laughs> Switzerland! Yeah, yeah, everyone's yeah, where you want to be.
3: So yeah. if the
1: people weren't getting involved in other people's crap, then we would then all um, think, oh, why? There has to be a reason why. <laughs> and so that yeah. would lead to a deep,
2: dark secret and... A mine shaft, or <laughs> yeah. Something yeah, yeah. I don't know. Know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's in, it, and then it's important, of course, as to drive your narrative that then in fact everyone does know everyone else's business in it, it, your story. Yeah, too.
3: And, and it's a, it's a weird thing because I'm a big um, I'm a big planner. Before I sit down to write, I'll intricately plot, uh, oh, uh, uh, intricately lofty. plot. <laughs> but then yeah, as soon yeah. Yeah. as I, How do you do that? I, I don't know. know I, well, that, well yeah. what happens though is as soon as I start populating with characters, the plot, it, it, yeah. I've, I've got to be very fluid because, um, you know, I, I, I always think about uh, character always needs to beat plot. So, you know, uh, if you have this gr- amazing scene where uh, someone has to run into a burning building and rescue a photo album, uh it's like, oh, and then all this cool stuff is going to happen as a result of that event, mm-hmm. but then you get to that, that scene and you realise you know that character so much better and you know she would never run into a building to get a photo up you know so it's this sort of you have to listen to um your characters it does sound pretentious but they do uh take on a life of their own i always say that my characters are um smarter than me mm. they say yeah. these beautiful things sometimes and say, i don't even know what he's talking about uh but yeah so for me it's this nice it's a balance uh, I, I i'm really into a uh, plot and that's probably from screenwriting as well that I try to work every chapter toward... The end of every chapter, to me, in my head, is a commercial break. And it's like, OK, they're, they're going to go pee and there's ads, but they've got to come back after the break, you know? Uh, so, so, yeah, so plot's really, really important, but I, I um, found more and more that, um, you know, leaving on a cliffhanger is one thing, but if you leave it on this sort of quite subtle character reveal, it's it's just as appetising and it's you, you want to read more just because I think that's more interesting than... Uh, uh, the, the, I think characters are more interesting than any, any story than the story mm. itself. You know. Mm. Mm.
2: What about you, Holly? So, what was the question again? <laughs> I'm losing my thread I'm really as well. I may not to have answered it. You know. I mean, how important it is to have. I think I was asking how important it is to have the characters, you know, driving the narrative as well as just being wonderful characters in their own right. But it's very true in your story, isn't it? You've got wonderful characters in the shopkeepers and the copper and yes. everything and yes. uh, yeah
0: I really did I mean yeah I mean for me my main preoccupation um, I guess in writing all these books is, is really a, a preoccupation with sort of relationships and um, and you know there's certain characters that are quite sort of stuck in both of these books quite and quite traumatised um, and I was quite interested in the, that idea of um, trauma and you know intergenerational trauma and how it kind of sort of fixes people in these sort of states um but then I was also interested in the other characters art that do seem to be to be able to evolve and to give them um these kind of relationships with other people in the book that are kind of I guess you'd characterize them as a kind of health helping relationship like people that facilitate growth in others and what that is like Um, and so I was really interested in that in both of these books and and Benny is certainly someone who who is able to kind of grow um, through meeting her mother's old, old friend. Um, but much like what you said about memory um, and, and having different perspectives, I really love that. In, in the first book I wrote, in Goodwood, it's a first-person narration, but in Cedar Valley, it's a close third-person. But you do get three perspectives. You get um, Benny and you get Cora, the shopkeeper who runs the antique store that the man sits down out in front of, and then you also get a, the policeman. Mm. Um, and I really enjoyed working with those different perspectives and, and enabling the audience, the audience, the reader, to, um, to hear what people think of each other because, I mean, it's always so different. Like, I, that idea mm. that, uh, that we're one thing is, I mean, I think, completely false. Um, mm. We're so many things. And, and fiction is such a wonderful way to draw out not just the various perspectives that we have of each other, but the various perspectives we might have of ourselves and then quite confronting things that we notice about ourselves. Um, And I was very inspired um, by, and for people who've read the book um, will know, A Case of the Summerton Man, which is a a, a fantastic and very bizarre, unsolved um, crime or mystery from Adelaide from the late 1940s. And for me, that was a really great thing to bring into this because it is something that really happened um, in Australian history and still is sort of fascinating in the fact that it's unsolved. Um, But I liked... I really enjoyed bringing that into the narrative in terms of ideas of identity and memory and... How much can we really know someone? How much can Benny really know her mother? How much should she know her? Um, sometimes, you know, you, you know something and then you kind of wish you didn't. And so the whole mm. thing is really about kind of these layers of identity and, um, and memory and, um,
2: yeah. And, it's, and layers of identity and memory really play into your story as well. I'm really fascinated about the why you wanted to ride a cult and why it had to be snakes.
3: <laughs> uh, it, it, it was... I, it was part of the, the writing process for me, and and um, I've learned this because the second book, the same thing happened. Uh, where all I start to do is is I have my core little idea, and then I just start to bring in other things that I'm really into at that time. I have this collection of uh, just things I get obsessed with, and that was one of them. For years and years and years, I was obsessed with these. Um,
2: what you wanted to be part snake of? Snake handlers. No, I just
3: found them so uh, uh, well uh, creepy, but also. Incredible, Like, the, 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 the faith it takes to handle a rattlesnake, uh, it, it, I can't even imagine. I, I don't have the capacity for that amount of faith, you know. So I, so I found that really interesting. I'm also really into religion. I, I was raised agnostic, but a, a lot of my friends were, um, you know, from different religions, and I used to get fascinated. And so I was baffled by certain things. Um, and I had a very close friend of mine who was a Jehovah's Witness, and her... Uh, they, ultimately they divorced the, her parents but for a, a period of I think four or five years they were uh, th- her mother was still believed and her father didn't and there was this this ridiculous weird tension within the family because uh, you know it, as, as my friend she would think well my mum thinks my dad is going to go to hell you know there's really weird stuff like that um, so I was really interested in that and, and I knew I wanted to do something with religion but uh, it was just easy to go to. It was f- a funner thing to, for me to do to, to wrap it all up with the snake handling. And, yeah, yeah, it's quite
2: vivid if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, and I think water, irrigation, as you touched on right at the beginning, is not a go-to topic for writers. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of us would you know, confess that we know very little about it. Um, you told me an interesting story yesterday. I'd, I'd love to bring it onto the stage, though, about where... about. Christmas at your, on the farm with your brothers and these people that turned up at Christmas and how this ended up being the germ for the novel. Yeah. The, 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 if you like, the, 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 this, the grit that formed the pearl, wasn't it? It
1: was, yeah. It was, it was about 2010 and it was the height of the millennium drought and water was costing $2,000 a megalitre and mm. nobody had that water. Um, or that money, and it was Christmas on the farm and we always go back to the family farm for Christmas. And outside the window, it, it must have been at least 40 degrees, inside was air conditioned, there was a lavish feast set out, um, but outside the topsoil was winding off the farm and all you could see was the clay underneath and there was not a blade of grass. Mm. As far as the eye could see, you could just see the shimmering horizon, you get the picture. Um, we were all sitting inside, and some some people that were are not um, people that go to the country a lot, um, arrived in their, I think it was probably an eighty, ninety thousand dollars car and got out of the car and came inside with four cans of beer and one bottle of wine, and walked into the family home and started talking about their their financial plight, um, how a business venture that they had, had just gone bust and the fact that they were completely ignorant of anything beyond their own concerns or even beyond the windows, they just walked from the car to the house and they didn't even look around them, um, struck me as a terrible thing. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to write this novel. Um, because and also people I know that are urban dwellers, um, they don't know about farming. They don't know what it's like. They think it's McLeod's um, daughters or the farmer gets a wife. or That's I—that's
3: they... what I envision. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: It's not. And the people are, are varied and cultured and different and industrious. It's a place of great innovation. It's a place of great progress. It's a place of great invention and science and endurance and partnerships, men and women, and women are valued because they do 50% of the farm work these days, and all those sorts of things just weren't making it to um, the media or literature. And I just thought that I, as I said, would change the world and change (laughs) all of that. Um, So that's basically where the whole story came from. And that was a Christmas day where I really did drink far too much champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you probably needed to if oh, you were enduring their company. I'm just really pleased that I didn't open my mouth and say
2: something that I would regret. But I, I, Well, you kind of did open oh. your mouth, but not so that you regretted <laughs> yeah. it, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You did it in the righteous way. Yeah. You put them into character. <laughs> Do you draw, Holly, on, on real people that you know? Because you've got a lot of characters in both your books. Are there are there friends and frenemies and enemies in, in your story? I thought you were just going to ask
0: me if I drew and I was going to be like, <laughs> well, actually, I don't mind
2: drawing. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: uh, you're, no, there's not. I mean, yes, I don't know. It's one of those things you always get asked and then never know how to answer the question. Um, there are certainly uh, elements of people I've come across mm. in my life mm. but it's not like I there's, there's definitely no one who I was like this is definitely based on this person except in Goodwood Jean's dog is absolutely based on my dog this is like <laughs> this is a, just a fictional representation down to everything of my dog but apart from that um, the people in the book uh yeah i guess in a way I, for, I don't know how you guys do with characters but for me it's it's always a little bit of a pastiche between yeah. sort of various aspects yeah. and i mean like aren't we all just a bit of a pastiche between every other person you've ever met <laughs> um so yeah that there's no there's no sort of direct through line but um i feel in a dreamlike state it all kind of comes together and ends up on the page
2: because you could say the opposite the, i guess the other way of asking that question is how on earth do you come up with so many you know, such varied and distinct characters when you've all, you know, got books that are populated with, well, whole communities? Um, For me personally, I, as a
0: reader, I really enjoy nonfiction, and I read a lot of books about psychology and I I just, it's just a real interest of mine and so I love books that sort of talk about, especially when you've got transcripts of therapy sessions and stuff like that, these characters that come off the page and I find that fascinating and I listen to... I'm really interested in, you know, psychology podcasts, like that Esther Perel Relationship podcast. Has anyone listened to this? Oh, it's, it's just <laughs> full of gold. Um, but I, for me, a lot of the time, um, something will come off the page of a nonfiction book that I read, and I think it's a really interesting kind of character trait, and it, it reminds me of ten people I know, and then all of a sudden this person comes up in, the, in Cedar Valley who might just have this attribute, and from then you kind of grow out. I think it's as you kind of begin to add colour and have them interact with people, like Christian was saying, um you then quite quickly know what they would and wouldn't do and what they would and wouldn't say. And I think that's yeah. a really nice thing about um, creating characters is how quickly they do become real and you sort of think, you get such a strong sense of them mm.
2: that you just know how they'll behave. Yeah. Because we're coming from a script writing um, tradition. Um, you would... Uh, tell us, how would you do... Th- how would you create character in that environment versus what you do in a novel? Yeah, it's, it's even...
3: It's challenging because you... Well, you have a physical detail, or you'll you'll give them something, you know, a little description. You'll know their age, and, and that's really it. Uh, and then it's just all through their interaction and their dialogue and things like that. But I think that you, I I think, consciously and subconsciously, I I do steal little details and from people I've met or people I know. Uh, but it's usually um, just one little small detail that mm. I'll give a person, and and the character will sort of grow from there. Uh, I. I uh, when my wife first read the book, uh, she said, the main character, Kim, she said, oh, that's that's your sister, that's Nikki, your sister. And then I thought back about it, so, oh, yeah, I think I did subconsciously, uh, you know, a, a, and I think when I was thinking about Kim, the main character, I knew I wanted someone, I knew she was going to go into a crazy world, so I wanted her to be uh, strong and passive, uh, but also just have a real sense of who she is. Mm-hmm. and. So I wrote that character, and then subconsciously I must have just, oh, that's my sister. So I, you know, so I think there's a lot of that going on. Uh, but I also think um, with screenwriting in particular, I learned this that you, this, there's a big cheat. There's this is a big way to cheat in books. I think all the best books do it. I know I do it, and it's just leaving bits out. So I, th- so with character, uh, plot, setting is a huge thing where you just, you, you just leave stuff out because we're all. Uh, especially now readers and audiences are really smart and they they bring all this um mm-hmm. history and memory and and, and you know so I had a guy recently emailed me from kentucky and said uh god you captured it so well and i said oh thank you very much i did it on purpose but i didn't i think it was just that he felt he had all those gaps to fill in mm-hmm. so and the same with characters i think you give them uh, uh, the, the, uh, sometimes it's better to give them a little less and give them a, maybe a detail and something in the way they talk. But then, if unless they're uh, if they're the slightest bit complex, the reader will bring a lot to it, and mm-hmm. uh, and then and it's and then it makes it, it makes you seem like a better writer. But it's just it's just cheating. Really.
2: <laughs> I mean, you come from a, a small country town too. So do you find that when you go back to Geraldry that people? Uh, uh, imposing themselves onto the characters. Oh, that's me. Or that's my mum. Or you know, or, or because <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely. And I <laughs> keep saying it's not you. It's <laughs> like you're not in it. You know, it's it's uh, it's a ta- uh, more, all communities are like that. They, you know, it's I've just taken slithers as everybody else does from. Everybody that I've met, and the the people, in, for example, in the dressmaker, there's no one as terrible as them. I took the worst aspect from the worst people I'd ever met. <laughs> Nobody could be that bad. But it's interesting because I I once met, and I haven't been able to use him yet, but I met a gentleman that had a short philtrum, like the really short oh, bit yeah. from the top of your lip to your nose, and it gave his face a whole a whole expression, mm. um, and an attitude a kind of a supercilious thing, and I bet you've all got one in Mm. your... ..that you're long... You haven't found a spot for him yet or that particular person, but you'll put them into your story and you know what they're like and they've got a a role, I don't know, bank manager, real Mm. estate, whatever it is. Um, And so that is where... Mm. And because, I like to say, because we know them, because we've met them we have a personal connection with them and we understand them and that kind of comes through your hands onto the page, that warmth and that mm. that um, proximity and the familiarity and I think that transports somehow to reading, mm-hmm. to the
2: readers. That's a very good note to, uh, to hand over to you guys to have a few questions as well. We've got 10 minutes left. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, just put your hand up. There's a roving mic. There we go, over there. Um... So, you know, I I could keep going. We we, will quickly descend into writers talking about how they create (laughs) characters and all that sort of stuff. It might be really interesting to us. (laughs) I don't know if it translates for audiences necessarily. Where have you gone, the lady with the microphone? Oh, Oh, here.
1: Is it on? Yeah. Um, When I read The Year of the Farmer, the Murray Darling was the first thing that hit me. And it was so appropriate for the actual year that it's written as to hiding water the desperation mm. and i was just hoping so many more people would read it to actually look at how important water is well done thank you Ta. <laughs> <Thanks. clears throat> um they say that um, a, i can't remember if it's books or paintings that they're abandoned
2: rather than finished um, if it is books then there's stuff in there that you would come back another time? Is there stuff that you feel is unfinished from the books that you've written that you'd like to come back to another time? Mm.
3: Uh, Yeah, it's weird. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. It's funny you should bring that up because I I got an email from someone saying, um, you know, uh, my book... It ties up pretty neatly at the end, um, but there's a few strands that sort of are left uh, a little bit to the reader's imagination, and, and I had a reader ask me what happened. They said, oh, what happens to this character after? Yeah. What does she do? Where does she go? And and I just... I sort of... I wrote back and I said, look, this is what I think might happen, but it, it's, it's gone now. You do, you do I guess, sort of... Um, you, you live with these characters and you live with this story and, you know, I, I'm, they're in the shower with you and they're on your dog walk and they're, you know... they're, they're it, I don't mean in the shower in a sexual way. I mean, <laughs> in the shower is where I do a lot of thinking. Uh, but, yeah, you you, you you sort of with them for so long, but then when you're done, I mean, I find that I I, I very easily... Uh, I don't forget them, but I very easily sort of cut them out of my life. Mm-hmm. And I guess it is a bit of an abandonment. So, so I had to be honest to that person to say... Oh, I don't know what happens, but it's you know as much as me. So I don't know if you guys feel well, the same. Well, Holly's
2: a slightly different case because Cedar Valley was in Goodwood and Goodwood is in Cedar Valley. So you've kind of just extended your universe, haven't yeah. you? You haven't left it at all. Yeah,
0: and, I, and in some ways, in both books, um, characters are left a little bit kind of suspended and there is a feeling of what what, what might happen next. And I, might, I certainly, as an author, have my feelings about what happens. But I must say, I felt a great deal of sadness in finishing both books because you do get so involved. Um, And it's quite... I found it, like, after carrying these people around for so long in such an intense way in the shower and also on the dog walking and driving and everything, shopping, everything that you do, um, I did feel a great deal of, um, yeah, kind of sorrow at thinking that they would be left... um, and, I don't know, it's like, a, like saying goodbye in a way. But yeah. it's sort of also, like, when you're writing, you're kind of racing to the conclusion in a way. Like, it's all about finishing, you know? It's just this endurance, like a marathon to finish, and then you finish and there's that inevitable sense of, like... Oh,
2: like,
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I, do you feel like that? I'm not, I'm not feeling... I don't feel this when I'm writing. Do you feel like this as well? No, but I'm just thinking about, Holly, what she, you said, there is that race to the end. Mm. Uh, and you're, Invariably, I've got the book back from the um, editor and they've said, no, you've rushed the ending, you've got to fill in all the stuff. So, and um, by that point, I'm sick to death of it. That's me. I'm over yeah. it. I've edited it 15 times and I've been writing it for so long that I'm bored to tears. Um and the other thing about finishing it off and i'm i'm going to take a lesson from Holly, and be a little bit kinder to my characters, and quite a little bit more loving. <laughs> but I also <laughs> find that the, the thought of a sequel terrifying because it, you you just have to better the first idea. Otherwise, you get lots of people coming up and saying it wasn't as good as your first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, your uh, earlier but work. Better. But
2: do you have lots of people say to you, "Oh, you're going to write the next Dressmaker"? You know that they wanted lots. to see those characters yeah. again. Lots. Yeah. Lots. So so? Yeah. Mm. Lots.
1: But it's terrifying. It, like d- that that book was um, straight from the heart and it just came out. I just sort of vomited it onto the page, but, and it was so dramatic. But I, could, I don't think I could write anything, you know, that would make anybody happy. It's mm. a wonderful compliment, though, when people want
2: more. Yeah. 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 Well, they got more in, your, in the case of The Dressmaker because they got the movie. So I yeah, suppose in did. a sense so they got they more in that happy. way. They should be happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> sure. That's your lot. <laughs> Go and watch the movie again. Um, and, I mean, do people have an expectation around the next Nowhere Child? Like, I know you've got a second book coming. Yeah. Um, do, do people kind of... Do, do you feel pressured to recreate The Nowhere Child? I, I,
3: I did when I... I, I, that I found the second album cliché absolutely true and I was obsessed with... Um, is it enough, like the nowhere child? Is it is it an, is it different enough? And and I, I, I both my publisher and my wife had to talk me on separate occasions, talk me uh, down from a ledge because I was just, oh I'm, everyone's going to see that I'm a fraud and I've just got you know I bluffed my way <laughs> I'm into a this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but then I just sort of uh, something clicked over and 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 I just got deep enough into the second story that. Uh, I just saw it for its own entity, and that then it, then it got. Now I'm excited about it coming out. I, well, that's I probably just finishing it too. I think mm. that uh, yeah, and and I f- I feel like I wrote uh, 80,000 words that I ended up cutting, and you know wow. I, I, I wrote so much more than I needed to because I was mm. uh, working through it. So hopefully the third book, I'm sure it'll be a breeze. Yeah, uh, Every- yeah no, it was the the, <laughs> the cliche was absolutely true. Yeah.
2: Do we have any more questions from the audience? Yes, that's two. We've got two questions, one here and one there.
3: I was just wondering, how do you draw the line when you're injecting reality into your stories? So, for example, in Cedar Valley, there's the Summerton Man, which I didn't realise was real for a long time. Um, When you're doing these things, is there a point when you're writing when you go, actually, this is getting a bit too real? No, <laughs> um,
0: and I also I'm glad that you didn't know that that was real because a lot of readers don't realize that it is real. And I hope it's an exciting thing when people get to the end of the book and they're like, is this bizarre shit really real? And then you go to no. Wikipedia and end up in a clickhole like I did for many many um, weeks. Um, no, I I think that uh, hopefully that's a good sign. If it feels in, in if it feels that way, like it's getting too real, I would hope that would feel good. I mean, I guess um, yeah, there's something about about. Fiction, I think, there's always something that's slightly kind of weird and unreal and that keeps us knowing that it's fiction. But the more enveloping it is, um, I think, the better. Mm
2: -hmm. There's a question
1: here. I I haven't read the book, The Dressmaker, but I have seen the film and I'd be interested to hear your comment on the casting in the film with the characters that they developed uh, come up to scratch, as far as you're concerned, in, in, and did you have any any say in the casting? Um, no, I didn't have any say in the casting. It w- the film was made by a girl from my hometown of Girildery, oh, and wow. so I just handed over. When she said she wanted to make it into a film, I just said, go for it on the condition that my entire friends and family and myself are extras and that I get to go to every red (laughs) (laughs) carpet. And that was the condition. So I had nothing to do with the the adaptation or the screenwriting. Um, uh, I just sat back and had a lovely time um, being extra at the bottom of the hierarchy with all my friends and family. I found the characters a lot different to the way they were in my head. But I didn't mind because I think that they all made the characters their own and um, they were enjoying their part and their character so much that I just let it all happen around me. I was, I was fairly starstruck. Um, and I thought the casting was pretty good, actually, mm. for given I know a bit of the backstory to the the casting. I thought Kate Winslet did an excellent job. They did ask all the Australian girls, the, the actors that would be able to... Draw or attract $17.5 million worth of funding, but those actresses were otherwise occupied, I think. (laughs) Um, So we got Kate Winslet on board, and I think that she was um, excellent. Mm. I liked her Mm. a lot. Mm. Judy
2: Davis? Oh, Judy Judy Davis. Oh, Lord, yeah, she was perfect. That Perfect. is all the time we have for questions, I'm afraid. So can you please join me in thanking our guests today, Rosalie Hamm, Christian Thank White you. and Holly Slotsky. Thank you. Thank you.
3: I don't know what to make or
1: I hope you enjoyed
0: listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date
3: for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.